Hi everyone, I'm Christopher Kent, and I am Director for Scholarly Activity at Sherman College of Chiropractic. And basically that means that I'm in charge of evidence-informed practice as well as research. So what was your first experience with chiropractic? Ah, that's a very interesting story. Uh, when I was about 16 years old, I was going through what many of us do, which is trying to decide what it is I want to do with my life. And I knew that I was interested in helping people. I knew that I was interested in human potential. And I started researching various career opportunities. Uh, you know, I looked at various psychotherapeutic professions. I looked at conventional medicine. I looked at um, other healing professions such as optometry, podiatry, and dentistry. And I really hadn't given much thought to chiropractic. But interestingly enough, I was experiencing a variety of health issues at the time, and my then best friend suggested that I see his chiropractor. And I said, well, gee, that's kind of interesting. I, I've seen offices with signs on them, but I really don't know much about chiropractic. And frankly, I never really thought of including it in my search at this point in my life. So I asked my mother, why my mother? Well, you know, when you're 16, that's someone to ask. But my mother happened to work at the medical college. And I thought she would certainly be able to give me some advice. And I said, could you tell me what's a chiropractor? And this sort of scowl came over her face as if I'd mentioned a sexually transmitted disease or something. And she said, a chiropractor? Ooh, that's someone who cracks your bones. Well, that gave me pause. And I said, cracks your bones? You mean they fracture? She said, I guess they must. You can hear them snap. I've seen it done. Well, now I was really having a dilemma. You know, my friend, who was seemingly rational and certainly ambulatory, was telling me about the potential value of chiropractic care for health, and my mother was talking about cracking bones. So I thought, how can I learn more without risking life and limb? <laughs> so I came up with a ruse. Uh, I noticed there was a large chiropractic clinic not too far from my home. I called them up and told them I was doing uh, a paper for school. And I said, may I come and interview you? And the doctor was checked. He said, sure, send him over. So I went over and he invited me into his private office and said, okay, go ahead, conduct your interview. And I began with that question that so many of us have asked. And that is, what is it that chiropractors do? And his response was probably the most elegant as well as eloquent I've heard in my 50 years or so of association with the profession. He said, chiropractic is based on four simple ideas. He said, the first is that the body is a self-healing mechanism. If you cut your finger, it heals. If you cut the finger of a corpse, it doesn't heal. Life is the basis for healing. And he said, second, the nervous system is the master system of the body. 
every dimension of the human experience is processed through the nervous system. Every motion, every emotion, every thought, every feeling is processed through the nervous system. And third, I must say it kind of gave me goosebumps then and frankly still does now. He said, when there's interference with the function of the nerve system, not only can it compromise your physical well-being, but because it distorts your perception of the world and compromises your ability to respond appropriately and adapt to the world, it can have psycho-emotional consequences as well. And when that happens to a significant number of people in a society, you have a sick society. And he said, fourth, what I do as a chiropractor is locate and correct what are called vertebral subluxations, which interfere with the function of the nerve system. Well, that's all I had to hear. I became his patient. Uh, to make a long story short, um, wonderful things happened. What particularly impressed me was not only that the specific issue I had was resolved, but many other things I hadn't even mentioned to the chiropractor improved as well. Um, not to mention my overall health, energy level, and general feeling of well-being. So it wasn't too long before one day, out of the blue, he said, I think you should consider becoming a chiropractor. And I said, well, what does that entail? And he said, well, you have to make a pilgrimage to the People's Republic of Davenport, Iowa. Well, he didn't quite say it that way. But I said, why Davenport? And he said, well, that's where it's done. And he was, of course, referring to Palmer College, which I graduated from. Um, some people say, well, you're associated with Sherman. Why didn't you go to Sherman? And the answer is, it didn't exist then. Yes, I'm really that old. So um, I went to Palmer, I graduated, and what was front and center in my mind was, again, that my life is really about human potential and empowering others. So I thought, if I practice chiropractic, and I felt the need to do so, I practiced part-time right out of school, but how can I get chiropractic to even more people? And I thought, teach. So I was offered the opportunity to teach at Palmer College, took that. and uh, Can you tell me about some of the teachers and mentors that you had and uh, oh, how, sure. how they helped you? Oh, lots of them. Um, you know, I've always been a bit of a rebel. So when I was uh, in chiropractic school as an intern, they had a very strict hair code. And, uh, you know, we're talking... 1970, early 70s. So, you know, I had hair, you know, pretty good hair. But in order to attempt to compromise, I said, all right, I got a wig and I'd stuff my hair under the wig. So when I would see patients in the clinic, I was wearing my wig. Well, one day I was adjusting a patient and the wig fell off onto the patient. The locks tumbled. And next thing I knew, I was expelled. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I ran into a chiropractor. Actually, I was writing letters uh, soliciting support for my position. And one was uh, Dr. Fred Barge, 
uh, who has since passed away. Uh, but he was a great mentor to mine, helped me get my priorities straight. And uh, as a result, I eventually uh, was able to return um, after some legal action. <laughs> and um, the amazing thing about the relationship with Dr. Barge is that it persisted. You know, um, we continued to work together. Uh, he developed techniques. He wrote a number of books. Uh, but he wrote books for both lay people and chiropractors. He did research. He published in journals. And he also got me involved in politics. We were both uh, on several boards. And I doubt if I would have done that much without him. Uh, other mentors were, of course, my teachers, many of whom have since passed away at chiropractic college. I think of uh, Dr. Galen Price, who taught philosophy. Um, it was the first course in the first year, and it's the one that made me want to get up and go to school. It's the one I really enjoyed. Um, I became involved in mental health in part because of uh, Dr. Quigley, who was my psychiatry professor, who is also director of an inpatient mental health facility, Clearview Sanitarium. Uh, and my interest in chiropractic and mental health uh, has to do with that. In fact, one of the videos on the the Sherman site talks about that, if you're interested in that. I think of my biochemistry instructor, uh, Dr. Kronk. And the fun thing with Dr. Kronk was, again, he, he stretched your imagination and, and your abilities. I remember uh, I looked at the schedule one day and he had me down to teach his section of biochemistry. And I said, Dr. Kronk, I said, there are a few things in life I know less about than chemistry. It was never really a fave of mine. And he looked at me with this very serious face and said, you graduated, did you not? And I said, yes. He said, well, if you graduated from our program, you must have passed a course in biochemistry. And I said, well, yes. And he said, in fact, I think you were in my class. I said, well, yes. He said, if you pass my class, you can certainly teach it. So you know, things like that that didn't seem like they were significant at the time, you know, really were instrumental in helping me to see that my potential was far greater than I ever thought it was, um, that you can really have fun if you love, honor, and respect people um, and interact with them on whatever level you can and maintain that love, honor, and respect and hopefully somehow uh, inspire them to do what others have inspired uh, in me. I also had the opportunity of learning from technique developers. Uh, I had the advantage of having graduated from Palmer, and so I started in Davenport, Iowa, and I already had a core of individuals that had seen me uh, as an intern in the outpatient clinic, and I was able to start there. And from that point on, it was, it was really just a matter of telling the story. But after I left Palmer, um, I was in a somewhat different situation. I went down to Florida. I didn't really know very many people down there, but I had the opportunity to associate myself with um, some other institutions that were teaching various forms of healthcare. There were a couple massage schools down there. 
that invited me to guest lecture. I was invited to speak at several psychology classes at a college and university down there. Um, there was another facility called the Soma Institute, which taught body-mind integration and body work. And by establishing connections with those people and basically letting them know that I'm a reasonable person, um, I'm personable, um, knowledgeable, and ready to serve. Um, it's establishing those kinds of relationships, I think, uh, that really helped get things rolling. Uh, but then there was a rather profound change that occurred in my life. I was visiting uh, my former business partner in New Jersey, of all places, and I was lying in bed trying to fall asleep and I turned my head to one side, and suddenly the muscle in my neck became rock hard, the SCM muscle. I thought, gee, this is kind of weird. And then the room started spinning, and I was literally holding on to the sides of the bed because I felt like I was in a centrifuge or something. And I finally managed to get out of the bed. My right side quit. I fell to the ground. Everything else from that point on is a bit blurred, but I remember being in an ambulance, uh, unable to move my arms or legs. Uh, they were using a bag mask to help me breathe periodically. And uh, they said, don't worry, we'll have you to the hospital soon. They're ready and waiting for us and so forth. And when they took me into the ER, one of the most disturbing things that happened was I saw this somewhat horrified look on the face of the ER doc um, who said, uh, uh, don't worry, we've called for a neurologist who should be here soon. Well, the neurologist came, uh, started doing an exam, and I asked him questions. He said, uh, what are you asking me? And I said, well, how come the areas of paresthesia, of abnormal sensation on my arm, aren't following the dermatome patterns uh, that we would expect them to? And he said, uh, we're working on that. And then he looked in my eye with the ophthalmoscope and I said, is there any evidence of papilledema? And he said, no. And I said, well, that's, that's good. I said, why do you think these deep tendon reflex are exaggerated? Is there, is there some sort of upper motor neuron involvement? And he said, are you some kind of a doctor? And I said, yes. And he said, what kind? And I said, the finest, of course, a chiropractor. And he had that same horrified look on his face that my mother had and said, gee, I didn't know that chiropractors studied the nervous system. Now, he wasn't messing with me, as, as we'll see in a few minutes. Um, you know, he was, he was very personable. He was very respectful of, of my position and perspective on things. Um, but at that point, he said, uh, okay, what we have to do is make sure there's no bleed. He said, we're going to get a CT scan. Is that okay? I said, sure, let's, let's do it. So they were wheeling me into the gantry of the CT scanner. And I remember kind of hearing off in the background, a voice saying, doctor, uh, I think you stopped breathing again. And he looked at me and said, don't worry. Uh, if necessary, we have a machine that can breathe for you. 
And at that point, I just kind of let go and said, you know, if it's time for me to die, that's okay. But if it's not, I need a body and a mind that's fully functional. Well, I woke up undead, apparently, uh, connected to all kinds of electronic gadgetry. And people were coming to see me for what they thought was the last time. And they hadn't told me this rather grim prognosis, uh, I guess, hoping to keep me cheerful. Well, one of the people who came to visit was an old time chiropractor who was as enthusiastic that day as he was when he walked across the graduation stage. Um, it was an acquaintance of mine. I had attended some meetings with him and we worked together on some projects and I was really happy to see him. And he said, you know, they didn't want to let me in here. They said it was for immediate family only. And I said, well, how did you get in? And he said, well, you know, I got a patient in the police department who gave me a courtesy badge that says police surgeon on it. So I showed him that and said, I needed to examine you. He said, come right in. I thought that, that was pretty cool. So he looked at me and he was kind of massaging his jowls. And I remember very vividly this penetrating stare. Uh, hadn't touched me, hadn't you know, done any formal exam at this point, and said, you know, you don't look so good. And I said, well, that's pretty impressive. That's the same diagnosis the neurologist from the medical school came up with. And he kind of smiled and he said, how about an adjustment? And I thought, what a concept. The worst thing he can do at this point is induce unconsciousness. And at this point, that would be welcome. So he rolled me onto his side. He adjusted my atlas, first bone in the neck. It made a sound like the report of a starter's pistol. I don't think I've ever heard a sound like that emitted from a human before, but it went, <coughs> he said, that's it. And he left. And the next day I was able to wiggle the fingers on my right hand. Uh, they were able to completely remove the ventilator. Um, Good things were happening, and uh, the neurologist came back in and he said, "Well, I didn't want to alarm you." He said, "But you know, the prognosis was pretty grim." He said, "But at this point, he said, I think you're going to live, but you'll probably be confined to a wheelchair, and you may well be um, incontinent." Well, that wasn't my idea of a good time, so I said, "Well, isn't there anything we can do?" And he said, "Well, rehab." He said, "Well, we'll get you some rehab." It's okay. Well, I continued to get adjusted and I was working on rehab and I got to the point where um, after 30 days or so in the rehab facility, um, I was able to walk out with the cane having been carried in and transitioning from, um, you know, them carrying me around with a belt to, you know, on parallel bars trying to get me to walk to being in a wheelchair to a quad cane and, and finally, you know, a single cane. And the neurologist said, I understand you've been getting chiropractic adjustments. And I said, yes, I have. He said, it's okay. I'll tell him to leave you alone. Um, he said, all I can really offer you is rehab. So if you want the chiropractor to come in, that's fine with me. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so 30 days, I was out of there, 
And at that point, I said to myself, you know, having gone from all four limbs paralyzed and requiring intermittent assistance to breathe, that although I had seen some pretty spectacular things as a practitioner, and although I've heard patients tell some pretty amazing stories, I never really owned it on that kind of holographic level in, in, in kind of my entire being. And it was at that point I said, you know, I will never sell out this idea for the episodic symptomatic treatment of back and neck pain. Chiropractic is about life. So how old were you when that whole episode happened? Yeah, it was early. It was 35, 36. There was no reason I should have had a stroke. Uh, I was very healthy. I was better looking than I am now. Uh, you know, I, I, I was um, in very good shape. I didn't have any pre-existing conditions. Uh, wasn't under any unusual stress. Uh, it was just kind of a serendipitous thing. And looking at it retrospectively, I really think it was probably... Um, due to the atlas subluxation primarily. And there were also uh, some malformations in the uh, vertebral arteries I have. So kind of that combo. So how did that change how you did business? That changed things radically because I, again, realized that there was more to do than merely see patients, not, not belittling that at all. But again, I, I still had some significant impairment that made it difficult for me to render the quality of care I wanted to. So I got involved in diagnostic imaging, particularly magnetic resonance imaging, which was kind of in its infancy uh, in those days, and um, wanted to make this technology available to chiropractors because it, it can be so valuable. Uh, so I've became involved with an MRI center with uh, my former business partner. And uh, about that same time, we started developing an instrument to evaluate nervous system function, which we called the subluxation station. So my life focus kind of went from providing chiropractic care to trying to find ways to improve the quality of chiropractic care uh, through the availability of better technology. And that, of course, led me to research. Um, and then there was another aspect of this that I really didn't ask for, but kind of felt um, I was more or less conscripted uh, to do so. Uh, and that's chiropractic politics. Uh, I did some lobbying work in Washington, D.C. And I was also uh, on the health committee uh, the NGO, the Non-Governmental Organization Health Committee at the United Nations, and eventually became chair of that committee, uh, which gave me the opportunity to have chiropractic presentations at the UN, uh, to visit the World Health Organization, things like that. So lots of stuff was going on. And uh, it really gave me an opportunity to do things, uh, go places and meet people I'm sure I never would have otherwise, whether it was uh, attending a fundraiser for the president of the U.S. to 
uh, lobbying people in Congress to doing a program at the uh, United Nations headquarters. So um, that was kind of fun. What's the ideal political landscape or policy landscape for chiropractic? Basically, I think what's important is that chiropractic be recognized for what it is. There are many professions that offer manipulative therapy for back, neck pain, headaches, and things like that. But chiropractic is a separate and distinct profession with a separate and distinct philosophy. It's not a subset of medicine. It's not a medical specialty. So I think if we are recognized as a profession that provides a needed service to humanity that's not competitive with medicine, that's not a part of medicine, but yet addresses dimensions of the human experience that other professions don't, uh, that's the ideal position for us to be in in terms of legislation and public policy. The major obstacle is the perception, uh, both within and outside the profession, that chiropractors are back and neck doctors or people who take care of accident victims and so forth. And of course we can help those people. But again, there's so much more to chiropractic. And that got me very interested in some stuff I was reading at the time on a concept called salutogenesis. And one thing that always kind of bothered me about chiropractic is that there were some chiropractors who defined themselves not as what they were, but what they weren't. I said, well, chiropractic is non-invasive. Well, that's good. Chiropractic is drugless. We help people without drugs. Well, that's true. Um, we don't perform surgery. And, and some people find that they may not need surgery if they get our care. Well, yeah. And I said, can you imagine going to a party and meeting someone and asking that, you know, kind of icebreaker question? Well, what do you do for a living? Well, I don't prepare food. Mm. Uh, you don't? Uh, well, I, 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 I don't wire houses. Uh, okay. Well, what is it you do? Well, I don't fly airplanes. Well, I, you know, I never heard of a profession defining itself in terms of what it wasn't is the point. Um, so again, trying to be a little silly with that, but it's, it's very real. So I said, what term is there that I think embraces what we do? Um, and the term was salutogenesis and doesn't roll off the tongue well. And it took a while for it to grow on me, but it is becoming, um, a thing throughout society in, in various professions. And it comes from salus, meaning health, well-being. Uh, one source even said invincibility. Um, and of course, if we look at how the term has been used, how that root has been used, you know, what do you do when you toast someone? Salute, right? What do soldiers do? They salute one another. Why? Because they're offering and exchanging a wish for health and invincibility. Pretty cool. Uh, and Genesis, of course, birth of. So saluted Genesis 
literally means to give birth to health. And this idea was originated by Antonovsky, who talked about what are the characteristics of people who enjoy health. And when I think of some of these concepts, one of the first things that pops into my mind is a question that was posed by D.D. Palmer, the founder of chiropractic. And D.D. said, here's, here's what my thinking was. I wanted to know why two people living in the same home, working at the same job, at the same bench, same food, same environmental dynamics, can be in a situation where one enjoys health and the other succumbs to disease. And he said, I reasoned that it was something inside that person, not something outside that person that was responsible for that difference. So Antonovsky talked about some characteristics of people, uh, you know, many years after D.D. Palmer, um, that are healthy. And he said they have a, a sense of coherence. Life makes sense to them. They feel that they have control over their lives. They expect life to have challenges. And in the salutogenic model, instead of trying to diagnose, treat, or even prevent disease, we're looking for strategies to empower people to express health. And instead of being done in the context of what are the normal values, what should your cholesterol be, what should your blood pressure be? We look at things in the context of what are your goals as a human being and what strategies can we offer you to empower you to be, as the old army slogan said, all that you can be. So one does not preclude the other. There's certainly a place for a pathological model. There's a place for medicine and surgery. But what's missing, and I dare say what we haven't heard of today when facing the challenges that we are, are strategies that individuals can have. The entire focus is on the virus, preventing propagation of the virus. Not saying that that's a bad idea but it's incredibly incomplete. What about the individual? Do you hear public health people saying, you know, it's really important that you make sure that your nervous system is working without interference. Haven't heard that. Have you heard them say it's really important that you focus on your diet? Haven't heard much of that. Have you heard them say, look, get out, walk, run, ride a bike, get some exercise. Haven't heard much of that. Haven't heard much of, even if you can't be physically close to people, nurture the existing relationships that you have and seek new ones. Haven't heard people say, whatever your spiritual tradition is, follow that and find, find support and guidance in that. Perhaps, Explore new ways of effectively dealing with the challenges in your life. Perhaps yoga, tai chi, things like that. You don't hear that, 
because we're looking at things from a pathological model. We're not looking at a salutogenic model. And the beautiful thing about the things that I just discussed are that they're not only helpful in a pandemic, they're not only useful when you're quarantined in your home, these are things that are nonspecific. They're good for anything. Why do you think that that is such a cultural normal way to think in terms of the problem is with the problem isn't necessarily with me and my health. It's with my environment or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it's a very dynamic complex process. And I think there are several cultural things going on here. One is an inherent fear of infectious disease. For some reason, uh, people feel that they lack control and they tend to be in a state of fear. And if we look at how we deal with challenges, um, Hans Selye uh, is the fellow who came up with the concept of stress as it relates to living things. And uh, I was privileged to meet with him on, on an occasion and get some FaceTime with him. And he told me an interesting story about when he was a medical student and he was in a class in differential diagnosis. And what they did in this class is uh, the students would be in an amphitheater type setting and the doctor's kind of in the pit, the professor, and he would bring in patients, present their medical history, what their exam findings were and things like that. And then he'd call upon students to try and figure out what was wrong with them. And so he said, you know, I was sitting there and I saw this parade of patients. And instead of looking for the subtle differences between this disease and that disease, I noticed that they all seemingly had a common appearance. And about that time, his professor, as some professors are wont to do, said, Salier, what's wrong with this patient? And he said, why, doctor, he's sick. And everybody chortled and had a laugh at Salier's expense. But it got him on this path of looking at commonalities and this concept of stress. And again, you talk about a cultural dynamic. One cultural dynamic that I think is also holding things back is the notion that stress is bad. Um, you hear people say, well, if I could only eliminate stress from my life. Well, you don't want that to happen. That's not going to happen until you leave this mortal coil and start fertilizing chrysanthemums. Because the thing that makes me different and you different from the chairs we're sitting in is that we adapt and we change. We're alive, we're dynamic. Stress is the spice of life, as Salier wrote, as well as having potential for damage. So Salier came up with a very elegant concept. He said, there are two types of stress. One is distress, which is the negative stuff. And that's what most people think of. That's where you have freeze, fight, flight. That's where you activate the nervous and endocrine responses that were made uh, so that individuals in prehistoric times could um, 
freeze, fly, or fight, depending upon what was appropriate for them to respond to a threat. But today we have people that cut you off on the highway and people that argue with you and people that get you upset uh, and you have flat tires and you have broken windows and you have all kinds of stuff in your life. And if you look upon these things as threats, you stimulate what a lot of people call the stress response. But I prefer to say it's a stress response. It's not the only one. The one that's overlooked is the one that Selye called eustress, as in euphoria. Um, eustress is positive stress. It's a growing experience rather than a challenging one. It's not a threat. It's an opportunity for growth. Um, you know, why do people go to movies that they think will make them cry? Why do they eat foods that burn on the way out as well as the way in? Why do they jump out of perfectly good airplanes with a parachute just for the rush? Because they want to expand the scope of the human experience. They want to, you know, suck the marrow out of life, as Robin Williams' character said in Dead Poet Society. So, what we as human beings can do if we have a nervous system that's working without interference is perceive something as an opportunity. Yes, it may be challenging, but it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for experience. It's not a threat unless you perceive it as a threat. So, that's part of the cultural thing. I know this is a long answer to a short question, but uh, the other is um, the fact that we live in a pharmocracy. That's, that's kind of a cool term uh, that was uh, coined by a psychiatrist. And uh, he said, uh, you know, we don't live in a republic. We don't live in a democracy. We don't live in a socialist country. We live in a pharmocracy. And he said, regardless of what the political system is, it's dominated by the pharmaceutical industry and the notion of the pill for every ill. And that just about anything that you don't like can be turned into a disease. Um, and I remember uh, I was at a bookstore back when there were such things, um, thumbing through the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Disorders, Mental Disorders. Yeah. And it's gone from, you know, a pamphlet to, yeah. And, you know, when you, when you read some of the stuff that's there, you know, um, I now realize that in high school I had math disorder. Yes, math was such a challenge that it disrupted my activities of daily living. Um, you know, there there's spousal relationship disorder. Uh, and if you've got a child, you have to differentiate between an oppositional defiant disorder and a whole bunch of other disorders. So what we've seen is a growth, not just in the mental health field, but anything that's unpleasant, anything that's uncomfortable, anything that requires you to exert yourself as a human being to realize your potential 
um, is thought to be a disorder. And if it's a disorder, well, it's not my fault. You need to find a drug for it, right? Yeah, it's like a removal of authority. It's like, this isn't my fault, or I don't have control over my own situation. Absolutely. And that's the characteristic of distress. And that's the characteristic of the opposite of salutogenesis, um, where you feel that you're a victim. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, But I have the answer for you. All you have to do is take this. It's like the difference between just running away from all the bad stuff versus running towards what's good. Well, as one one friend of mine said, and again, not disparaging the appropriate practice of medicine, but he said in many cases, medicine is putting you to sleep when you need to be awakened. Yeah, it's the the pain is a is a warning saying that there is something wrong. Yes, and that doesn't always take the form of a broken arm. Though it can, but it can also be digestive trouble. I encountered a guy recently that was so hard on meth that his face started breaking out in sores. Mm -hmm. The solution to that is not to get some kind of an ointment Mm -hmm. and put it on your skin. It's get off the drugs. Absolutely. Stop putting yourself through that. That's why your body's responding that way. Absolutely. So I say, regardless of whatever else you're doing for your health, You need to be checked by a chiropractor for vertebral subluxation, and you need to look at the lifestyle choices that you're making now, because another area that's very exciting is epigenetics, when we talk about this idea of human empowerment. And if you went to school not too long ago, uh, I remember in high school very long ago, uh, the teacher bringing out a model of the DNA molecule. And he was all excited because this was um, an idea that was revolutionary. He said, you know, Watson and Crick, they've done it. They've decoded life. And now we know why you are who you are, why you face the challenges you face, why you have the illnesses you do. It's all hard coded into you and there's nothing you can do about it. Absolutely. You're stuck. And I thought, I'm not excited by that at all. I find that kind of depressing. You know, the notion that uh, your genetic legacy, whatever your parents gave you, that's it. That's all you're going to be. And uh, it's for the most part encumbrances rather than opportunities. But what has been discovered is that although our genome is pretty hardwired, there's a process epigenetic that turns various genes on and turns various genes off. In other words, you have the same DNA uh, in all the nucleated cells in your body, not red cells and things like that, but um, you know, what's, what's the difference between a skin cell and a liver cell and a renal cell, you know? Well, which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. The exciting thing is that we found that epigenetics is not just associated with differentiation of cells and determining what cell becomes what and under what circumstances. I am oversimplifying a bit here. But that the lifestyle choices that we make and the environmental dynamics that we are subjected to 
also causes some genes to turn on and some genes to turn off. Um, there was a very interesting study done by Dean Ornish, and some of you may be familiar with Dr. Ornish's work. Um, you know, he was very much into lifestyle strategies. And some of his medical colleagues said, uh, as, as you had suggested earlier, you know, some of this seems kind of airy-fairy, uh, ethereal stuff. And they said, well, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? So he did a fascinating study of men who had prostate cancer, but chose not to have it treated. And you know, many do if they have uh, a slow progressing form and so forth. So um, some of these men just did what they continued to do, and others took a program that he had devised. And he found that it was possible to change the expression of literally hundreds of genes in a relatively short period of, of less than, than several months just by altering their lifestyle choices. And if we dig deeper, we find that these epigenetic changes actually can persist for several generations. Uh, for example, individuals that were uh, in famines underwent changes in gene expression that have been passed on to their children and grandchildren. Uh, you know, Holocaust survivors being one example. So when someone says, well, you know, who cares if I smoke or if I eat poorly, uh, you know, that's up to me, that's my life. Well, maybe not, especially if you plan to have children because epigenetic changes can be passed on. The good news is they can do stuff to express uh, their potential and, and their desires too. Uh, but the bottom line is that when you change your life, you change the lives of others. Now, you know, there have even been some interesting studies looking at how you interact with people close to you influences people who touch them that you don't even know. So even though a lot of these things run counter to a simple mechanistic model of I feel this way, we do these tests, the outcome of the tests show these numbers, so we give you these drugs to change this parameter so that you don't have to deal with that anymore. Um, very different cultural perspective. And again, to me, an exciting one that's focused on getting you to be independent and empowered rather than dependent and uh, in a state of fear and disappointment in many cases. Does, uh, what's your religious background? And does that play into your uh, practice at all? Uh, again, when I was going through this teenage, young adulthood, soul-searching thing, I thought to myself, well, what is more important um, than knowing what the reality is? You know, is there a God? What's the nature of the God? Uh, how can I get in on a good thing here in terms of uh, uniting with whatever this thing is or person is? So I started going to churches, synagogues, exploring lots of religious traditions and really didn't find many of them terribly satisfying. So 
I would say kind of where I am now is I look upon many religions as being symbol systems that represent traditions from various cultures. I believe that life is intelligent, that we're not an accident, um, that we have choices, that we're responsible for those choices, and that uh, this isn't a dress rehearsal, this is a real thing. And uh, I also believe that you know, beyond this life, we, we certainly continue. You know, um, actually, I was thinking of writing a book in my spare time, uh, addressing this, looking at scientific evidence uh, demonstrating the likelihood for those kinds of things. Maybe that'll happen someday. So if uh, somebody wanted to reach out to you or find out what you're up to, uh, can you tell me about any books that you've written or your website and what's the best way to, for people to reach out to you? number of possibilities. Uh, if you're a chiropractor or a healthcare provider and you're interested in more technical stuff, uh, I have a subscription service where we deal with science, politics, and, and philosophy each month. And uh, the website there is chiroonpurpose.com. Uh, the title of the publication is On Purpose. Uh, if you're interested in the research that I'm doing at Sherman College, you can go to sherman.edu, uh, look under the research thing. You can scroll down. I've got a number of videos on there. Um, and probably the best way you can reach me is by email. Um, I'm not chained to a cell phone. Uh, one of my favorite commercials from years ago was showing a group of uh, young men and women out in nature having a wonderful time, uh, you know, drinking wine and talking to one another. And all of a sudden a cell phone went off and the guy kind of looked and wasn't really happy with his cell phone, thought for a moment and then pitched it into the body of water and, you know, everybody else followed it. Well, I'd kind of like to do that, but I really can't. But um, best way to reach me is by email which is ckent, K-E-N-T, at sherman.edu. And I do have a book called, um, oh, Chiropractic Insights. Um, so that's available. And that, that's a book that could be enjoyed by a patient or a layperson as well as a, a practitioner. And that's available on the website. Well, Dr. Kent, thank you so much for your time. We're about out of time. Oh, goodness. Hard to believe. It was a it was a whirlwind. Uh, thank you so much for your insight, and uh, I wish you all the best. Well, I wish you the best too, and appreciate the opportunity to share with your audience.